Ashley Lucas is Associate Professor of Theater and Drama at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor and Director of the Prison Creative Arts Project. She's the co-editor of Razor Wire Woman, Prisoners, Scholars, Artists, and Activists, and the co-author of a blog by the same name. Ashley also wrote the play Due in Time, Through the Visiting Glass, which she has performed as a one-woman show since 2004 and which jump-started her career in prison theater research and performance. In part one of this episode, we discuss her most recent book, Prison Theater and the Global Crisis of Incarceration, as well as her very personal experience with the carceral system growing up. We'll cover her in-depth research into prison institutions around the world, the role that theater plays in creating community, and how it can transform the lives of the people forced into the prison system. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and today I'm speaking with Ashley E. Lucas, the author of Prison Theater and the Global Crisis of Incarceration. Thank you for being on the show, Ashley, particularly in light of the BLM protests this summer. Critiques of the carceral state have been an important part of mainstream discourse, conversations about defunding the police, but also how and why prison systems can function as a modern form of slavery. And I've been fascinated by this idea of art as a rehabilitatory practice for a long time. So I'm really looking forward to speaking. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. And, you know, of course, while I was writing the book, I finished it before the murder of George Floyd and the revolution that we've seen in our streets in the last half a year or so. And it's just such a strange moment in everyone's life with the global pandemic and the painful realities of the attacks on democracy here in the United States and in many other parts of the world as well. So I feel honored to have a platform to speak about the lives of people who are trapped inside prisons today and to hopefully carry some of their spirit and intellect and creativity out into the world at a time when perhaps more people might be willing to listen to them than they have before. Yeah, I agree. Your work is incredibly important right now. And I think that there is such an appetite to talk about this issue. And on that note, what really inspired you to write this book? Well, my father went to prison in Texas when I was 15, and he stayed there for 20 years. And that experience of having someone I absolutely adore be taken from our home and our lives in a daily physical way made me realize how much of the world is experiencing the same thing at any given time. In the United States, we lock up over 2.3 million people. And yet somehow, until it happened to me, I had been entirely unaware of this enormous structural barrier that separates families and communities and loved ones for oftentimes, as in my life, decades at a time. And something that powerful, that devastating, that extraordinary, a form of social control, extraordinary in its force and duration, and the way that the thought that incarceration is somehow just or natural has invaded the public psyche here in the United States and in many other parts of the world. All of that 
hit me with such force that it's really taken the rest of my life from that time forward to begin to process not only what happened to my family, but what we are all living through as these carceral forces sort of lay out the parameters of our lives, whether we're aware of them or not. People's lives are destroyed for such arbitrary reasons. The things that systems choose to criminalize is often very arbitrary and uninformed. The system criminalizes people in ways that they're reacting to ways the system failed them in the first place. And I'm just wondering, you know, your research took years and it was conducted sort of in this cross-cultural context over 10 different countries. Can you talk a little bit about what that process was like? Do you feel like there's space for empathy in academic research? I definitely feel like there's space for empathy and actually an enormous need for it in academic research. We often pretend that what scholars and professors write about the world is somehow impartial or unbiased because we are the authorities, we're the makers of new knowledge when we put these kinds of books into the world. And if we do that work of making new knowledge without empathy, then we have taken a very forcible political stance. And I don't know why we are so willing to look upon empathy as a thing that makes people somehow more biased than to do the work without empathy, which is also an equal form of bias. All of our writing, all of our subjectivity comes from somewhere. We're all human beings. And if we don't look upon, particularly those of us who write about living human beings, if we do not look upon each person as the miracle that, that all living beings are, then we've missed something essential about the nature of how people operate in the world and what their daily lives are worth. So that doesn't really begin to answer yet the question of how I did the research in 10 different countries. It was actually Bloomsbury. I'm honored that Bloomsbury has this academic podcast and that I've been invited to be a part of it because this book would not have been possible without an advanced book contract from Bloomsbury's Critical Companions series. Critical Companions is a series of theater history books that looks at different ways of knowing the world through theatrical performance. And they came to me and said, would you be interested in submitting a proposal about prison theater? Because we know that this is something that you do and we don't want to just recreate the canon of theater history in this Critical Companion series. And I originally proposed to write about the U.S. and the U.K. And the editors at Bloomsbury threw the proposal back to me and said, this looks great, but why just two countries? Why don't you add in South Africa and Australia and Canada and Ireland? Why don't you talk about all of these other places? And I said, oh my goodness, I would love to. I just didn't realize that the world of research support was capacious enough to let me do that. But that cycle feeds each other. It's just like when you work in fundraising and money follows money. I think it's kind of true in research, too, that when people place great expectations on a project, those expectations are possible in ways that they weren't necessarily before. So here I was, an assistant professor, thinking, how am I going to get the funding to go to all of these different places? And because I had a book contract, when I wrote the grant proposals to go all over the world, I was able to do that. I'm deeply, deeply grateful to Bloomsbury for making all of this possible for me. And on a more mechanical level, how I got the research done in all of these different places, I have a number of contacts in the United States. And I just started talking to them and going to conferences 
because there are a few conferences now that deal specifically with theater in prisons. And at these places, I would meet a couple of folks from other countries, or I would meet colleagues in prison theater who had traveled and made connections with prison theater companies in other places. And it was a kind of snowball effect that I just started meeting people and reaching out to them and saying, hey, you know, I am the child of somebody who spent a long time in prison. And I'm also a theater scholar and a playwright and an actor. And I spend a lot of time doing this work in prisons. And I would love to see what you do. And if possible, write about you and your work in my book. And all of these strangers all over the world were so incredibly generous and welcoming. They not only did the difficult labor of helping me get into prisons in their country, which is never something simple, but they often took me to their homes. They fed me dinner. In Australia, a friend took me to a koala sanctuary and we (laughs) sat and talked about Shakespeare in prison while looking at the koalas. I mean, it was just an unbelievable set of opportunities. And serendipitously, I had finished the research shortly before the global pandemic prevented any more travel. So it all felt like like an incredible series of gifts. And now even just getting to talk about the book and continue relationships with the people I met in these travels by having them speak on panels with me through Zoom to help promote the book is an honor. It's very humbling and very joyous to stay connected at a time when those of us who do work in prison are cut off from some of the people we love most who are still sitting inside the walls. It's such a juxtaposition thinking about the isolation that people who are behind prison bars are experiencing right now when in an already isolating year, but it must have been so validating to witness such a tight, powerful network of people doing work that's very similar to yours and to see how it manifests differently in different contexts. What are some of the things that you noticed about other carceral systems in different countries? I mean, were there things that surprised you? Were there things that you wanted to take back to the U.S.? I mean, what are some things that you really noticed in such a comprehensive global study of the carceral state? You have such a thoughtful way of asking that question. Other people often put it to me in the frame of who has the best or the worst prisons in the world, in my view. And the truth of the matter is that nobody has a good prison. All prisons are devastating. All prisons rip families apart. All prisons remind you in every aspect of their existence that they are there to prevent you from being free and that your life is conscripted and held back from what it could be. All prisons are places of potential violence, disease, and devastation. And usually they fulfill that potential quite clearly. And the pandemic is making that all the more clear. Prisons have always been a microcosm of what's happening elsewhere in society. So everywhere I went in the world, the people inside the walls were the poor, the illiterate, the black, brown, indigenous, immigrant people, LGBTQ folks are disproportionately locked up everywhere in the world. The young, it was really, really disconcerting to see the prevalence of structural racism and classism and discrimination against people who are non-heteronormative and discrimination against people who have little education. All of that seems to be a global phenomenon. And the way that we cage these people looks qualitatively different 
in each place, even within the same country, even within the same state here in Michigan where I live. There's a prison that looks like an old castle and has the plumbing of an old castle. And there are others that feel very modern and have electronic doors that open and close at the push of a button to keep you in or out of certain spaces. The contrast from place to place is often more significant within one state in the U.S. than it is from country to country. It's not as much about cultural difference. But um, I've had this really interesting experience for the last seven years, or I guess we're going on eight now. We've had partnerships from the University of Michigan, where I teach, with two universities in Brazil who also have year-round prison theater programs in Rio de Janeiro and in a city called Florianopolis off the southern coast of Brazil in the state of Santa Catarina. And we've done this exchange where I take my students to Brazil and we visit the prisons there and we do theater. And likewise, our Brazilian colleagues come here and go into the prisons and do theater work with the folks in Michigan. And when we went to Brazil for the first time, I was struck by how much sunlight there was in the prison, how much fresh air, because a lot of the spaces open to the outdoors in some form that is not quite as common in the United States. The interior spaces had access to sun and fresh air in ways that the U.S. tends to close people off. And because the weather is so much warmer in Brazil, even in the winter, the folks there were wearing flip-flops. That was the standard issue, prison shoe. And it seemed in some ways so much more humane to have access to light and air but also the buildings around them were crumbling. One of the prisons where we do theater workshops there is a converted bus terminal. And so the men who are forced to sleep on the top tier of the prison in particular have no real ceiling. The ceiling is made of wire mesh because it was just meant to be a bus shelter. It wasn't meant to be a place for human habitation. So the rain, the intense sun, the wind, the heat, the cold, everything just comes right into your bed if you live on that tier. And that's not a thing I would see happening in the United States. And when my Brazilian colleagues came here and they went into the prisons, one of the students looked at me and said, my God, it's so clean. How could it be this clean in a prison? And I don't think of U.S. prisons as being particularly clean. They're not clean in a way that I would want to live there. But compared to what they were used to in Brazil, it was a contrast enough to kind of make the Brazilian students gasp when they walked into U.S. prisons. So for me, incarceration is not so much a question of, does somebody have a better kind of prison? It's what are the particular tortures of living in this prison? Because they're there, but they're probably different than the particular tortures of the prison down the street or in the next country. Yeah, I guess I asked the question the way I did because I agree with you. I don't believe there is such a thing as a good prison system. I think that it's all about harm reduction and which system is practicing the most humane measures they possibly can in a system that is inherently inhumane. But you've been doing this research for so long. Has Has your perspective on the prison industrial context changed at all, or has it just sort of cemented how you've always felt? It's hard to answer questions like that because in truth, the most important aspects of my research began when I was 15 and I walked into my first prison to see my father. 
And so there's a lot of emotional resonance tied up in that. And in that sense, I don't think I've progressed at all because the very first time I walked into a prison, my father was convicted close to Thanksgiving, a couple of days before Thanksgiving in 1994. And we didn't have a chance to see him until Christmas Eve of that year because in Texas at the time, I don't know if this is still the case, you were plunged into a diagnostic system that prevented you from any contact by phone, letter, anything else with your family for the first 30 days of incarceration. So my father couldn't speak to us in the immediate aftermath when we were all so shell-shocked about what had just happened to us. As soon as he was able to tell us where he was, he sent us a letter. That was the first way that we even knew where he was being held. And then we flew across the huge state of Texas when we had spent all of our money trying to keep him out of prison. It was a very expensive proposition to travel all of a sudden to get to the middle of nowhere to see him. But we did it. We flew to the the airport closest to him. We rented a car. We drove down these little country roads to see him. And because it was Christmas Eve, there were children everywhere. We went into this prison and all I could do was stare at the children. And, you know, I was 15. I was a child, but not a small child. By that point, I was old enough to really know my father and to have a clear sense of the love that we share and what had just been taken from us as much as anybody who never thought about these things could have in that moment. And I was from my first footfall inside of a prison, absolutely appalled that we do this to people and keenly aware that we were doing it not just to the people who are actually convicted of something, but to everybody who actually cares about them. And so my first day visiting a prison was an up-close look at what it's like for children to spend holidays and all the meaningful days of their life inside a facility that was built with no eye towards humanity at all. And if that is the fundamental truth about prison, which I think it is because, I, again, that piece of what I see in prisons has not changed at all anywhere in the world, then we just shouldn't be doing this to people. No, I agree. I mean, I think that's heartbreaking. And I think that that's always the purpose that prison has served. That's the reason why it began in the first place. It's a form of slavery. And as you said, it's this insidious web that ties in everybody that's connected to the incarcerated person. And it's often we criminalize people that are already oppressed in our society, as you were mentioning, that people of color, black, brown people, LGBTQ people, immigrants are disproportionately represented in our carceral systems, which just begs the question, are we choosing to imprison people over things that other people get to do white men, rich white men do with impunity. It's often about that as well. But you have started the practice of prison theater as a way to deal with the inhumane cruelty of the prison system. What to you are the different kinds of roles that prison theater plays? Well, much like my entree into prison research in the first place, I had no clue what I was doing when I got started. I began doing theater in prisons at the invitation of other people because I was doing a play, a one-woman show that I had developed based on interviews with other people who had family in prison. And I wrote that play and started performing it because I felt so alone 
in the experience of having an incarcerated father. But I'd also done all this reading that said that there were 2.3 million people in the United States alone, much less the broader world that were locking people up. With all those people in prison, it didn't seem realistic that I didn't know somebody else who had family members inside, and yet nobody was talking to me about it. So my first foray into this work was to create my own play based on interviews that were helping me to understand what had happened to other people's families. And that for me was an act of beginning to imagine myself out of isolation, to find community among other people with similar experiences. And then when I got the chance to really start devising original theater with other people who live in prisons, I realized that the work functioned in that way for them as well, because you can live side by side with people in a prison for sometimes decades without opening yourself up or deeply getting to know them because you take a lot of emotional risks when you tell people how you really feel inside of a prison. I often say it's like being in the worst middle school ever. And I don't say that lightly or to infantilize people in prison, but for a lot of us, middle school was a pretty miserable experience. And it's because there are a lot of high stakes emotional things happening to you, but you're trapped in the same damn building with the same people all the time. And if people tease you or start a rumor about you or treat you in a certain way, decide that you're a certain kind of person, then that follows you in all of your interactions with everybody around you. And prison is worse because you never get to leave. There's no reprieve from it. And the power dynamics are even worse than middle school by a long shot. And you don't get any rest. You're under that level of scrutiny constantly. So what we do in the theater is actually asking a lot of people who live in prison. We're asking them to be vulnerable, to tell us how they really feel, to tell us what matters to them. Even if they don't say those things explicitly, to perform them in the act of getting loose enough, relaxed enough to really have fun and share something of their inner humanity rather than only being able to share with the walls that they put up for their own protection, the emotional and expressive walls that people are required to build around themselves prevent a lot of the things that the theater is specifically seeking. So when we really get into it in the theater, we're opening up all these possibilities that you're not supposed to have in prison. And that's why it's actually good for so many different things. So in the book, I talk about the formation of community, the ability to express love and empathy, the development of professional skills, the solidarity and organization that are required to create real social change. And people in prison have done some remarkable things, actually changing the structural quality of their lives through theater. And the landing place emotionally of the book is about using theater to maintain hope in a place where it's very easy to lose hope. Yeah, I mean, in other words, giving people the opportunity to affirm their humanity in a space that serves to dehumanize them in every way. Absolutely. I mean, hope is such a radical emotion. Even if you're not in the carceral system, I mean, it's such a difficult time in general to maintain hope. But in, in the face of fascism, in the face of prison, of not being able to actually leave 
a place for dozens of years, that's all you have to sustain yourself in some cases. It's a conscious act that we practice. And it seems like theater is definitely a part of that to serve as a reminder of people's relationships and love and the desire for connection with other people. But I'm wondering, like, are there particular types of plays or styles of theater that resonate most that you've noticed in your research? Well, I'm happy to attempt to answer that question, which is a tricky one. But I also wanted to say sort of before we move away from that last thought that we often are, when we look at any kind of event or programming that happens in a prison, we're often asking how it benefits the people inside. And one of the things that I hope that the book conveys is that all of the things that I just talked about are happening in prison theater and are extremely meaningful for the people who live in prison and engage in this theater or become audience members to performances that are created inside prisons. But all of those things and the bit about hope in particular are equally gifts to those of us who live in the free world from people in prison. We have an immense amount to learn about how to survive difficult times, about how to maintain our sanity when we feel that we're being conscripted by a fascist regime. These are our life skills that people in prison have had to acquire. And those who didn't often committed suicide or succumbed to violence inside prisons, that's not uncommon either. But the survivors, the ones who are here to tell us what's going on, have so much to give to those of us in the free world. And I think we tend to look at them as receivers or receptacles for our ideas or our actions. When in fact, I hope very much that the book helps people to see people in prison as actors rather than the people being acted upon. That's just a thought that I wanted to put out into the world because you were asking about what prison theater does for people. No, I'm happy that you added that. It feels very important to me because we cast people in prison as being very passive because they are caged. And the truth is that it took a hell of a lot to cage them. They didn't go willingly and they didn't go accidentally. And they still have a lot of agency, a lot of ideas, a lot of love and a lot of intellect to share with the world. That said, you were also asking about what kinds of theater work best in prison. And I have to say it all works. Everything. (laughs) Everything that works for people out here works for people in there. I also work with a program at the University of Michigan called the Prison Creative Arts Project. And we're best known in the free world for this giant exhibition of prisoner art that we put on every year. And I think a lot of people think that art of any kind, be it theater or visual art, made by folks in prison is all supposed to fit certain tropes that the the style of it should look like Grandma Moses or should just be dark and have a whole bunch of bars or be about sad thoughts and sad feelings. And when you lock up 2.3 million people, their tastes, their interests, their abilities, their creative energy is as diverse as any other group of more than 2 million people. So I've seen fabulous puppet plays put on in prison. I have seen some of the best Shakespeare I've ever witnessed. I have seen original devised plays. I've seen a lot of great comedy. People in prison are really, really ready to laugh. And the setting of prison is such a tense one that comedy is very palpable and available. We laugh at things that stress us out 
And we laugh as a means to break tension. And just walking into a prison, the tension is through the roof. So when you are smart about it, the opportunities for comedy in prison are enormous and really disruptive of all of the ideas that we have about what prison is and should do. So my students who go into prisons each week with the Prison Creative Arts Project when we're not in the middle of a global pandemic will often tell you that going to prison is the best part of their week, that they have more fun there than anywhere else. And that's not as naive a statement as it sounds. It's not that my students don't see or experience the devastation or the horrors of what we do to people in prison. But when you get to a space inside a prison where people are ready to commune with one another, to do something positive, to share, and to be a part of a constructive collaboration, everybody walks in the door really, really ready to begin, which is not the case in my university classroom (laughs) or any other theatrical rehearsal space I've been in in the free world. We walk in with all this baggage and our cell phones and we're tired and our bodies hurt and we're preoccupied about a jillion different things that are happening outside of the space that we share. When you go into a prison, you already went through so much. As a volunteer, you probably prepared months in advance to get security clearance to plan out what you're going to do. You get searched. In Michigan, we have to take off our shoes. We get patted down. You kind of have to get not fully undressed, but you have to take off all these layers of things and let strange people touch you to make sure that you're not smuggling anything into the prison and then put it all back on. And then sometimes in Michigan, walk through the driving snow across the prison yard just to get to the point where you even see the people inside. And that's just our journey. The people who live there had to survive an entire week or months or years before they got to see somebody who was going to come in to take them seriously as artists and to really share something that day. So by the time all of us get into the same room, we are so ready. We're ready to be present and open and to do something that matters and to really listen to each other. And that level of attentiveness and that sense of being present that we like to talk about a lot in the theater where nothing else is distracting you, you're just living in the moment. That is automatically created by the prison in a much stronger way than any other social force that I've known. So when we do gather to do this work, the potential for real magic to happen is very, very high. We're so excited for you to read the books from all our amazing authors that we've talked to this season. Add Prison Theatre and the Global Crisis of Incarceration to your cart on our website and enter code Prison Theatre 21 at checkout. That's Prison Theatre 21 at checkout. This code is valid until December 31st, 2021.